Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hits. This is New Year's Day. This is going out on the 1st of January 2021. May it be a better year than last year. That's all I can say. That's what we often say. Answer thought. Anyway, so we've got a big long episode for you today. Andy McNabb is the name taken by the best selling author, highly decorated former British soldier, special forces operative, um, and very celebrated figure from the first Gulf War and beyond. Andy McNabb wrote a book called Bravo 2-0 that sold millions of copies about his experiences on an SAS patrol in Iraq during the first Gulf War. Um, he was captured, he was interrogated, he was tortured. And then he was finally released at the end of that conflict. He went on to write lots of other books, uh, nonfiction and fiction. He has the most extraordinary life story, as you'll hear. Thank you very much for him, for letting me rabbit on for so long to him. Uh, this is just, well, it's a remarkable story, as you'll hear. It's not for the faint-hearted. So you might want to have a quick listen before you let any kids listen to it. In the meantime, I hope you get to 2021 off to a great start, wherever you are in the world. Um, if you want to take up our January sale offer on History Hit TV. Now's the time. Use the code January. It's good for a few more days. January, and you get a month for free and then 80% off your next three months. So please check that out. In the meantime, everyone, here is Andy McNabb. Andy, thanks so much for coming on this podcast. Pleasure. Thank you. Oh, you've been a, a hero of mine ever since uh, one of those... One of the, I read... Bravo to Zero, and I was a teenager, and it obviously it changed my life. You've gone on to write lots more bestsellers, and we'll talk about those. But you've spent more of your life being a writer now than being a soldier. Is that is that weird? Is it that, is like, really, is that... really weird. Yeah, really weird. It's quite it's quite interesting. Certainly in the nineties, there was a time where it was over ninety percent of the infantry's intake was because of they've read Bravo to Zero as, as, as young men. So now you're sort of meeting those guys. You know, you used to meet them earlier on and they, they're sort of, you know, to be early in their careers. And now they're senior NCOs and you know, they've been in the army forever or done their 22 years and out, you know, and they, they join because of Bravo. Yeah, so, yeah, it's really freaky. And do they ever say, hang on, mate, you sold me a dodgy bill of goods that oh, I didn't yeah, get well, to cane yeah. around the desert in, in yeah. Iraq? Yeah. That always goes on. Absolutely. So that it's uh, it's the parents of, of so even now, it's parents of, of sort of young men and women who, who, who want to join the army because they've read, you know, the books and and uh, you don't know whether they're sort of congratulating me or warning me. You know, there's this quite sort of, it's a weird mixture, yeah. Speaking of back when you joined the infantry, back in the day, you write, you've written about that beautifully in a couple of your books, but... It was the old-fashioned army. They wanted people that were in trouble. They wanted kids that were in trouble. Qualifications weren't that important. You've written that you were, you know, if it hadn't been for the army, your life would have been very different. Yeah, it, it's, you know, well, they, they were recruiting out of the um, uh, juvenile detention uh, system. It was called the Borstal system at the time. And I was a product of the, you know, the Borstal system and then a product of, of the army. And it was, at that stage, your sort of uh, levels of... of academic achievement wasn't really a, a, a big deal. And in fact, somebody with a reading age of a five-year-old as a, as a you know, 17 or 18-year-old uh, was eligible to 
join the infantry. And, uh, and, and now it's gone up a bit now. It needs to be uh, uh, key stage two, which is about an 11-year-old. But at that stage, it was like, just get them in. And, and there was, a, there was, there was a, a, a sort of a social contract at that time as well, because the borsal system was all about something called the short, sharp shock. So it wasn't about rehabilitation, education. In theory, what it was to, to scare, basically, you know, teenage kids into not reoffending, and clearly the system didn't work. So there was this movement by, you know, sort of outside bodies that was lobbying government to say, look, you've got to get in and do something with these, in effect, you know, these teenage kids. So the army was one of those 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 groups that came into the ball stores to try and do something, you know, and, and effect get some sort of, you know, social mobility. You've experienced social mobility. You know, you, you couldn't have had a, a tougher start in life. Can you tell tell the listeners, you know, what, your your origin story? Well, yeah, I was I was I was a, an abandoned baby, so I was I was um, found uh, outside Guy's Hospital, um, and I was sort of you know about two days old. So they went into care as a baby, and then eventually I was adopted into a family and lived in um, uh, South East London basically for the, for the the rest of my time. We sort of went to nine. Uh, different uh, uh, primary schools at that time because we was always moving around. Um, so never really got any sort of, you know, consistency, continuity, whatever you want to call it in, you know, education and sort of family life. And that's why I wanted, like everybody else, I just wanted the money without sort of realising you had to get an education to, to get a decent job to earn it. So that's why I landed up in, in, in the bookstore system. It was all part of, I think we were called at that time juvenile delinquents and they were going to, you know, sort us all out. Now that you're you know, successful, rich, famous. Do you think about trying to find your 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 birth family? No, I don't. Um, it it's it's interesting. My my elder brother, uh, not a natural brother, also was adopted, was from the same home, and he sort of because my mum was a cleaner at the home, and literally you could or they could like take kids home for the weekend. It was bizarre, you know. It never happened now. So this, my what became my older brother was in the same home, and he would disappear um, uh, off to this 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 couple, you know, the 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 cleaning lady, and um, he sort of you know uh, moved in, was adopted. Then I came in, and because he was never interested in that, um, because what he said, he said, well, you know, the, these are these are parents, so why do I have to worry about the ones that? wanted nothing to do with you sort of thing so and i understand you know i don't know the reasons why but i understand it, it probably was sort of you know a quite an emotional sort of you know part in you know with my mother all that sort of stuff but actually they're the ones who, who sort of took me in from the home brought me up exactly the same as my older brother so i thought it was good enough for him good enough for me and it's it's never been a, a major issue although you obviously you weren't that i mean we i guess you weren't happy i mean you got kicked out of, a lot of schools i mean it was a there was something that was churning up inside you yeah, I, what it was 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 always in 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 my head, even even as a, a you know, since I could remember, you know, as a, as a four or five year old, um, the, you know, certainly the home was a uh, like a waiting room. Everything will be all right, and then I'll move on. So when I um, when I was adopted, it became again. It was like a waiting room, uh, and sort of you know, at sixteen, I'll leave you know, I'll I'll leave that home and then go some go somewhere else. So there was always an urge to go and do or or be something else because it, it's and an always an optimist it, you know everything would be all right sort of thing so i'll you know i'll just give it a go so it wasn't as if it was a uh 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 you know i've arrived you know certainly when i was adopted i was arrived it was great you know i wasn't sort of you know physically sexually mentally abused none of that, that sort of stuff um 
in fact, I did the opposite. I had loads and loads of freedom in the in the sort of in the, in the council estates we lived in. Um, but it was just sort of well, when I'm 16, then I'll leave here and then go and do something else. Impatient. Yeah, there was a bit. I did because there was always something. There was always something better to do. But it wasn't as if I knew what it was. Um, well, certainly as a until I joined the army, really, I didn't really know anything out of. Well, South London, really. You know, I went to Margate once when I was a kid, went to the seaside once, and that seemed miles and miles away. Um, so everything was sort of quite contained. So I didn't, you know, know what was over the, the over the hill. But, and there, there wasn't exactly a burning ambition to do it, but I knew it's there and I'll be having a look one day. So that's okay. So when I'm 16, I'll, I'll go and have a look sort of thing. I read an interview with you a while back and, and it's funny because you're now, you're now a best-selling author. But you, you could, I mean, you're reading, you, you came to reading very late on in your, in your teenage years. Yes, yes, at, at 16. And it was, it was the army. And that's why I'm sort of a huge advocate of, of army education, really. It's the recruiting film I saw, fantastic recruiting film, helicopter pilot, you know, small little helicopter, a little scout, which was one of these little bubble perspex helicopters. He was flying low over the, uh, the beaches of um, Cyprus. Not that we, anybody knew where Cyprus was. It didn't matter. It looked great. So he's flying over. And then the guy said, right, who, you know, like, who wants to be a helicopter pilot? And then, you know, we, yeah, we all put our hands up in, in, in Borgstall. And uh, you, at that stage, you went away for three days to Sutton Coalfield, to the, the assessment, the Army Assessment Centre. And it was very, very clear, all of us, from, from the Borgstall. Because the deal was... If you got accepted into the army, you wait for your release, uh, your your joining date, sorry, and then you was released uh, from the institution. You went home, uh, uh, went back to get your kit a couple of weeks later, but that, that was about it. So the big deal was we're all going to be helicopter pilots. Got to Sutton Coalfield for these three days of physical and, and academic tests. And it was very clear that, uh, you know, weren't going to get close enough to spit at this helicopter, let alone fly the thing. So I was offered a, a place in the in the Green Jackets. We're happy to offer you a place as an infantryman. <laughs> as an infantryman. And I thought, yeah, great. It, you know, it sounded like a football team. It sort of, I weren't, and again, because I didn't take too much interest in the the, the, the the films that you were watching when you'd done this three-day assessment and all that, you know, about the different regiments and all Because all I wanted to do was get out of Borstal. So I went, yeah, okay. And um, it wasn't until I joined um, what was then called an Infantry Junior Leaders Battalion. And um, uh, the part and you know, part of that year's training, uh, which I didn't realise until about three months in, was that you went back to school. And I, I'm thinking, right, the army's ripped me off now. I'm back at school, you know. But the guy that he's, he, the, the educator at that time, the army education uh, corps guy, not only changed my life, but everybody there really. Because he said, look, you know, everybody outside the other side of the wire, and he kept on pointing at the fence. And the, there was a place called Cheriton, a little town, a little village um, uh, over the other side of the playing field. He said, look, all that lot over there think you lot are thick. Uh, you said it a bit more flowery, of course, you know, he was in the army. Um, uh, but you're not. He said, the only reason you can't read and write is because you don't read and write. And today it all changes. And it was then because uh, he explained to us the reason why we were in the infantry and not flying helicopters, that we all had the reading ages of, of between a 7 and an 11-year-old, which is now key stage 2 within the, the education system. And it sort of all made sense to me then, because it was like all squaddies, you know, during the naffy break, you know, this mid-morning sort of break, you used to get stank kidney pie and a pint of Vimto at the naffy, because you can't have alcohol working day anyway, but obviously we, we were, uh, you know, 16, 17-year-olds. So, uh, and a copy of the Sun newspaper. Um, all squaddies read the Sun. And then, um, 
uh, sort of, you know, clearly in them days, page three, there wasn't a lot to read anyway. So uh, it turned over the sports pages. And there were actually, there were words that I really didn't get, you know, so I used to make up what, what they were and obviously get the, the, you know, the whole sort of narrative wrong, what was going on in whatever it was, a sports or a story. It, it, it sort of dawned on me, yep, yeah, okay, right, I get it. Now I know why I'm, I, you know, I'm in this, this, this infantry junior leaders battalion. And the first book we all read, we were all given a copy of this um, book, Janet and John Book 10, which was a, uh, a book for primary school kids. And um, not a lot of text, you know, picture on one side, a paragraph on the other. And you went through this brother and sister, Janet and John, what they're getting up to. We all uh, had the week to go through it and read it uh, because the education went on. It was it was almost like night school. You know, so you do your military training and then three day, three times a, a week, you would then go um, yeah, to the Army Education Centre. So on Friday, individually, we went up, read the book to the to the educator read the um, the vocabulary on the back, spelt the words, explained what they meant. And he went, right, he said, okay, close the book, which he did. Yes, sir, mini army, close the book. And he said, well, remember the, the feeling you're going to get back tonight in the block. Um, we used to live in these like 24 sort of bed uh, blocks. And uh, uh, the feeling is, you know what? I've just read a book and it didn't kill me. And I went, yes, sir. And uh, But he was right, absolutely right. And then it was then where... I realised, and it could, because I was told rather than realised, that, that you could be the best soldier on the, in the planet, but unless you get certain academic qualifications with, during your sort of career at promotion levels, you're never going to get promoted. So there was this incentive um, to get an education. But actually, what, 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 when it started, um, it became infectious. You know, it was like a snowball effect. And it, and it sort of, you know, it, 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 it was fantastic. And and that's what really sort of kicked it off, and and then certainly you know, even during the special air service, you know the, the you know the infantry junior leaders battalion was about eleven hundred soldiers. The battalion, you know, the regiment, you know, on a good day is about six hundred. Then the education centre there was bigger than the one at IGLB, you know, because it, it was all about education. You know, you can, it, it doesn't work unless you know what you're doing. You read Janet and Janet and John. Janet and, and John, book ten, six, seventeen, book ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was now, just nearly now, nearly seventeen. Nearly so. So you're 16. You're now, I'm not going to say how old you are, but you're very young. And you have written how many books? Um, in total now with, with the young adult books, uh, it's about 34. And sold how many million? Um, about 33 million. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations for that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, so, but you, and the interesting thing about your army career, if we're going to talk about a bit of your army career now, is that you had a, you had a pretty ex- ex- extraordinary career even before... Saddam Hussein ever invaded Kuwait? I mean, tell me a little bit about what you were up to in the in the eighties. Yeah, well, I, it's um, obviously I joined an infantry battalion, and the and the and the war of choice at that time was um, uh, Northern Ireland. And so, as a, as literally on my my eighteenth birthday, the battalion were already in a place a, a location, a town called Cross McGlen, uh, in South Armagh at that time. They they got there about three weeks beforehand. And by then, you had to be 18 to go on one of the, what they call the emergency tours, because there were so many 17-year-old soldiers that had been killed in, in years previously. So uh, I went there on my uh, 18th birthday um, and then done that. You know, at that time, it was called Bandit Country, and the, you know, because there was no vehicles that would move out around because they were always getting bombed. Everything was by helicopters. And literally, you'd be patrolling the town 
uh, that'd be a 24-hour presence on the town so mortars couldn't be driven in to, to mortar the uh, security base. You'd be doing the, these 24-hour patrols in, in the town or then patrolling the border. So you patrol the border in the daytime and then convention, like conventional infantry work at that stage. So it was setting up uh, 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 ambushes at night on the border. So it was sort of this straight introduction into this world. And... These emergency tours for us were, were once a year because we were based in Tidworth, the big uh, uh, garrison town in uh, um, near Salisbury Plain on the Hampshire, Wiltshire border. And so I came back from that tour and, um, you know, the, 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 our platoon had, t- had taken casualties. Our commanding officer was shot down in a helicopter. All these things were, were going on. But actually I come back and I had about a thousand pounds. It was 18 year old, a thousand pounds. It was amazing because, you know, you... You buy a bit of soap and a bit of toothpaste and that's it, you know, for sort of nothing, no more than five months. It's normally about four and a half months, something like that. All the second-hand car dealers are rubbing their hands when you get back to the garrison town. So you buy a heap of a car. Nobody's insuring them or taxing them or anything because literally within six months, you're getting ready for the next door. So again, it was back to a place called um, Keeley in, in, in South Armagh. And it was then, it was the, I was no, uh, 19 by then. Um, so I was going back for the, for the, for the second tour. South Omar was a, was, a, was a winter tour. This was a summer tour, so it was, it was a bit better. And it was there where uh, we had a few sort of contacts, you know, firefights, bits and pieces, but they're always big things, you know, what happened, and you're not really too sure what's going on. So there's an element of excitement in that. But in uh, Kidi, I had a, a quite a close contact uh, with a, a provisional IRA active service unit um, so it was the first time that it actually uh, killed somebody uh, when I was nineteen. So there was a there was a the big housing estate opposite on the edge of the on the town on the on the uh, the, the side where the border was because um, Castle Blaney was literally about ten minutes away in the south. So I just turned the corner, come out the the uh, what we call the cuds, coming out of the the if you like the countryside, coming back into the the southern part of the town um, in charge of a what we call a brick, which is like a four-man patrol so just come round round the corner and there was a huge amount of uh civilians waiting on the on the other side of the uh the housing estate the other side of the road which was normal because on a friday and saturday night buses would come and pick them up they got castle blaney to play bingo and have a night out because it was safer down there and then they would they would come back but then instead of sort of them just being there and not much happening they all started screaming shouting and running around and, and I looked left and literally, I don't know, it was sort of, I don't know, seven, eight metres away. Uh, there was there was a whole active service unit at the provisional IRA, you know, all masked up uh, assault rifles. And what they were doing, were doing their PR bit to the people in Castle Blaney. But they were just getting ready for a shoot for another patrol that was in the northern part. And it was a, a cattle truck. And what they do, they'd armour up the inside of the cattle truck and the rear tailgate was about three quarters high up. Um, and they would drive past the patrol as it's patrolling the streets. ASU would then pop up and start firing at the patrol, and then they would carry on going t- uh, towards the border. And they were literally doing their PR bit, getting out of their cars to get into the cattle truck. So it, it, it turned into, you know, it's uh, in the films, it's all sort of all quite sort of uh, uh, organised. It's not, it, it's within the, you know, the parlance of the, the infantry, it's just called a cabbie. You know, they're just firing because they're not too sure what's going on. I'm just firing. I'm not too sure what's going out. I run out of ammunition, so I had to sort of, you know, get on the ground, trying to uh, change magazines. 
Um, so this 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 firefight happened, and there was one dead. There was two that were, were the, that were wounded. Um, one of them was quite a famous terrorist at the time. We didn't learn until later on. He, he got away. A guy called Desi O'Hare got him through the uh, the hand. Um, and the joke always was was unfortunately he shot him in the left hand because he's right handed, so he could still uh, he could still fight. But it was just a, like this big cabbie and, and um, uh, you know, trying to clear the area. You've got all the civilians now going, you know, mad because, you know, people are shooting. So they're trying to get away. It became a, a, quite a, a chaos. The interesting thing was that by nature now, we, we just expect it to happen all, all, all the time because of 24-hour news. But, you know, this happened about six o'clock in the evening. You know, again, these, these people getting the buses to go to Castle Blaney for the night. Uh, and then by 10 o'clock, it was on the news. And it's Kate Aidy sort of, you know, doing her thing with a microphone, you know, interviewing people around Keedy about what happened. It was really freaky. Can I ask what that was like, you know, taking taking a life? Yeah. Do you know what? At, at, at the time, it's not as if it's, oh, you know, training took over and all that, you know, because you're just firing and doing all that sort of stuff. It What it was, was when it was all on the news and we're sort of back in the, uh, uh, we're back in the uh, security force base. Um, and you know, watching it on the news, already known that the, uh, the 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 you know there's one dead, two wounded, all that sort of stuff's all, already known. And again, we're all sort of uh, you know 18, 19, 20, 21, you know, sort of all young sort of uh, guys. So there was an element of bravado about it. So it was like great, you know, um, uh, and also there was credibility uh, for me because what was happening during that time, if you had what was called an A one arrest, which were the top twenty, you know, terrorists you used to get these these montages of pictures, uh, wanted pictures. If you got an A1 arrest or you got a kill, you got two weeks extra leave at the end. So before you'd done this called a rip, a relief in place where another battalion would come in and take over, which was always a pain because literally it'd be hotbed in and, you know, because everything's got to carry on. Uh, if you got two weeks leave, you would leave two weeks earlier. So you got out of that rip. So all of a sudden there was a credibility. The first kill of that tour, I got this two weeks leave, all that sort of stuff. And the fact that it's happened. But what it was, was I felt at that stage, I couldn't say I didn't like it. I couldn't actually say, well, I don't want to do that again, because there was this whole sort of machine, you know, this bravado thing that goes on. And, and, and it actually, it wasn't, it wasn't until I joined a regiment, um, uh, quite early on, actually, when, when I was there, when I was still a trooper. And uh, we'd done a job in Southeast Asia, and there was, there was a couple of guys who'd been in a regiment, literally 16 yeah, 16 years. And uh, they were going, oh, don't want to do that again. That was a bit airy, you know, and, or, or, you know, it's a, another, you know, fruity. They go, oh, it was a bit fruity. And then all of a sudden I realised it was all right to be, you know, not too worried, of, you know, about not, not showing that you're worried about these sort of things. But at that stage, you know, I, I, so I just went with the flow, really. And because everybody wanted to know what went on and, you know, who was screaming, who wasn't, and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so I just went on with it. So it was a weird sort of, a weird thing, but it, you know, looking back, well, you know, again, because just a, you know, bunch of young men, really. One of the many weird things, I think, about being in the army is you can end up, you can end up having a firefight on a on a on a civilian street, yes, in your home country, the I know. UK, is or, or or your or your peers at that time in the on the other side of the world in the South Atlantic and yeah. the Falklands amidst the, you know, snowy peaks, or in the desert. I mean. Do, when you were that young, did you just think, oh, I'm just go where Her Majesty sends me? Yeah, is, yeah, is it yeah. that simple? Yeah, yeah. it wasn't, it, do you know what? It wasn't it, nothing to do with, uh, you know, Queen Country and all that sort of stuff. I basically um, always looked at it as a as a mutual contract. So 
Uh, join the army, they get out of Borstal. Again, I thought they, they ripped me off because I thought you just signed up for three years at that stage. But if you joined the, the, the Junior Leaders Battalion, they wanted you for six years because they trained you for a year and they wanted to get that return out of you. So I'm thinking, right, you know, they ripped me off here. But it became apparent during that time at IGLB that what it is is a mutual contract. This is what they're giving me. Uh, and it's everything from, you know, sort of, you know, pay to what I didn't realise at that stage, even pastoral care in that way of, of looking after you. You know, you've got like a platoon sergeant hollering and shouting you all day when you're doing your training. And then at night, he's got you all laid out on the bed because he wants to check your feet and make sure your feet are all right. You know, no one's checked my feet before. You know, that's sort of, and all of a sudden there's this sort of, you know, this, this, this sort of care. So you get all of the, all of this stuff and and bed, even the bed space, you know, you pay for your bed space, you do all that, you know, food and comedy, that's mine, you know, and uh, and so it gave me that stuff, and then, but this is what they want me to do. So, um, and I thought, well, it's a, you know, it's a fair, as far as I was concerned, it was a fair contract. I thought it was all right. And, and even, you know, time in the regiment was, well, you know, which is the big sort of, you know, the, the, the mantra there, well, you know, lads, nobody's making you stay. If you don't want to stay here, you can leave. You know, it's okay. So thousands of people want to take your place. It's all right. So, yeah, it's a mutual contract. God knows how many people tried to join the SAS after you published your books, but your, your description of selection... It went on, yeah. Uh, is, uh, ...became sort of legendary. And, and how, I mean, how hard, you know, how hard was that looking back? I, yeah. How old were you when you decided to go for special I forces? I was uh, 24. And, and I actually, uh, uh, looking back, a bit too young and a bit too cocky, actually. It, yeah, it was 24. And it's, it's, but basically, during the infantry... I'd done all of the, the stuff, if you like. Well, what, what will you do as an infantry sergeant? You know, I was quite, uh, by then, I was a 24-year-old platoon sergeant, which was, was, was sort of young. So I'd done all of the tactical courses and distinctions on this and, you know, A grades on this, that and the other. And so I'd, I'd, I'd been, uh, at that stage, I think, probably promoted above my ability because I just didn't have the experience. So I was 24 years old, platoon sergeant, and I'd become... Uh, what is known as, and I didn't realise at the time, it was called a pinnacle soldier, where basically you've done it and you think, well, what's next? You know, so, and like everybody else, you know, I was all full of all of the horror stories of selection from people, nine out of ten times, people who failed it and then come back and obviously they've exaggerated it to to, to sort of give them a reason why they, why they failed. So I thought, well, why not give it a go? Why not give it a go? And there was one person in particular who went for selection who, who who got in and we was all absolutely amazed and we thought well there's a chance for all of us <laughs> you know this guy got in there's a chance for all of us um so yeah i i, I went a, a bit too sort of cocky and, and slightly over overconfident because i was only 24 years old and already achieved quite a lot in the infantry and did you get in first time no i didn't no um uh, and it was the cockiness that done it i the the selection is just that very first month of the of the process, which is about a seven-month process. So the second to last day is a thing called sketch map, which is about a 35-kilometre tab. So that first month is all of the things we think of, you know, Black Mountains, Brecon Beacons, you know, with a Bergen, a rucksack, you know, we're called Bergen, up and down the mountains, um, uh, map reading. During sketch map, I, I took a, what I thought was going to be a shortcut through a fire, uh, f- through a fire break, um, and it wasn't. It was a very long cut because they chopped the trees and all the trees were in the in the fire break so i landed up at night sort of climbing through to try and make the distance so I, I, that was it. it you know my timings were rubbish so the, you know the, the the second to last day of that first uh, month I, I totally cocked it up you go for your interview with, with a training major and then what they'll do is 
they will invite you back. You only got two goes at selection um, because if you continue to apply and fail, you're, you're taking the, the place of someone, you know, of a candidate who might actually get in. So you get, get invited back for a second selection. And that's normally you know, people who, who they feel that their timings were good, but they got an injury, you know, they broke something. Somebody like me, where they think, okay, right, well, again, he's, he's, he, you know, he's, he's, he cocked up. Um, and so far, the timings had been okay. So therefore, I was invited back. So when I was, I got a place because uh, normally you have to wait about eighteen months. I got a place straight into the next selection, which was a winter one. Um, and again, all the horror stories about the winter selections, obviously because of the weather and the snow. And but actually, I found the winter one better than the summer one because even the racing snakes can't get through the snow. You know, you're three foot of snow. Everybody's doing the same thing, trying to fight through it. Um, so I finally got through that that um, uh, winter selection um, uh, and, uh, you know, very, very happy. Um, out of the numbers, it's normally, it's normally about sort of maximum 220 on a selection um, that first month. And that's purely for health and safety reasons, really. But, you know, that amount of people on, on, the, uh, on the hills. And um, from my selection, there was, from that first month, there was 24 of us left. So I was, you know, very happy to be part of that 24. Must be a hell of a thing getting that. Well, what is it back then? Letter, phone call. How, how do how do you, how do you get told that you've you've passed into the SAS? Well, do you know what? It's 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 really really weird because it is not a big. Um, uh, it's, it's a bit of anticlimax, really, because you, obviously you do that 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 first month you understand you've got in. So once you've done that endurance, which is this sixty-two kilometer. Uh, you get any endurance you've got your watch you know your timings you know you say right i've cracked it i've cracked it so you know that's okay because the next bit isn't so much about the the the, the sort of the if you like the you know the determination and the physical fitness and the stamina all those things it's about aptitude whether you can get in and the the, the freaky thing about it you know you you'll go to you spend a month in the jungle doing um, uh, the, uh, you know, learning how to work as a, as a small, you know, four to six man uh, patrol in the jungle. You're in there for 30 days and uh, it's all live ammunition, all that sort of stuff. There, there has been casualties over the years that, you know, people have been killed during that, that training process. But you're never told how good or bad you're doing because it's all about your effort. And literally after that, that jungle phase... I thought I'd failed. Yeah, I thought that was it. So, uh, and you didn't know until you got back to the UK. So we got back to Hereford, which is the, you know, the headquarters of Special Air Service. And they say, right, we're all in this lecture room. He said, right, the following people stand up. So the lads who stood up, I'm looking at them thinking, right, they've passed. And um, uh, then they was told to go. So it was, it was eight of us that were still sitting down. And I think, okay, right, well, I've passed that bit. And literally went, okay, you've passed. You know, what we're on to now is, is close court battle training. So you get the weekend off, great, and then you, you start on that. And it's literally at the end of this process, as it, as it whittles down with these different sort of things you've got to do, we all turned up at the RSM's office to go and meet the commanding officer because we know we're getting badged. But again, because we all come from different regiments, you know, you, for a regimental start major, you stand to attention, but everything's so sort of casual. We didn't know whether you stand to attention. You, you know, nobody knew. So it was all a bit sort of weird. And basically, so he said, right, you're going to go and see and see, oh, he's, he's going to badger. And um, uh, well, that's it. And OK, so we went to the CO's office. Doors opened. And again, we didn't know if we had to march in, walk it. Nobody knew. You know, it was really, really weird. And he just had these pile of, um, of, 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 of uh, berries, you know, the beige berries. 
But they're anybody sort of ex-military, no, they, they were Kangals, and they're like these things are you know as big as sort of double duvets. Nobody wears a Kangal berry, you know, because we've already got our berries from a place called Victor's beforehand. But he got these berries out, and he just threw them as fizzbies, and and he said, right, remember it's harder to keep than to get, and um, you know, enjoy going to the squadrons, and that was it. And we sort of all shuffled out, and. You know, was was you know there was guys from the squadrons then who were there ready to meet us just to take us up to the what we called the interest rooms, you know, the offices, uh, and you just joined your squadrons. It was really, really weird, really weird. Is it very different? Is it a different kind of soldiering? I mean, you're mentioning, of course, like less marching and saluting and all that. I mean, is it is it is it just very different to any other? Yes, unit it is. Yeah, right? yeah, and it's it's it seems casual. Because, you know, in some cases, for months and months, you, you, you won't be wearing uniform, you know, around Hereford, depending on what you're doing. Certainly, if you're on the counterterrorism team, there's no uniforms, you know. And, you know, people walking around with long hair and beards and, you know, doing different jobs here and there. Um, but it, what it's all about is self-discipline. So, uh, say, a squadron sergeant major, same as any squadron major in, 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 the, in, in the army, you go, right, he'll say, right, mate, what I want you to do is this. Can you do that for me? What he's telling you is you will go from here to go there and that is what you'll do. He's telling you that, but it's in a different way. And you go, yeah, OK. And off you go. So it, it's the discipline is a self-discipline. Um, and that's why, for instance, you know, if you got done drink driving, you get uh, thrown out. RTU'd return to unit because the argument is, well, you haven't got the self-discipline to control yourself when, when you're out. So if you get caught drunk, you know, drunk driving, that's a, that's a lack of self-discipline. So what happens, it was all about, it could be very, very casual. You know, nobody wore rank and, you know, and everybody called everybody by Christian names. Um, you'd call, you'd, well, basically you'd call the, the squadron commander, who was, who was a major, and the, uh, the commanding officer, uh, who was a lieutenant colonel, you called him boss. Sometimes you'd call, the, if you had a, had a troop commander who was a captain, sometimes you'd call him boss, sometimes you wouldn't, it all depends what he wanted, and that was it. But if, you know, if the, if, if the troop sergeant's going, right, lads, what I want you to do is go down, you know, be there for nine o'clock, well, you're there. Well, in fact, army time, you're there for five, two, nine. And the argument is, if you're not there, well, you don't want to be here, so leave. Simple as that, you know. So it, for me, I thought it was fantastic because there was all that, other stuff was out of the way, you know, the, the, if you like the traditional military sort of um, uh, discipline. And in a way that, you you know, it was up to yourself. There wasn't even any set physical training. Because the argument is, if you can't perform on the day, that's a lack of self-discipline because you haven't been training. So you're out. Simple as that. And then how long were you in the SAS before the, the, the first Gulf War? Um, I was in um, seven, seven years, seven and a bit years. Because other ranks, officers would used to rotate through, right? But but other ranks could stay in. Yeah, for, for yeah, ages. yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. So what happens is is officers do select do do selection, and they're normally at that that, that that stage they're probably you know lieutenants or, or captains, and so they do selection like anybody else. Actually, they have a harder selection because they have a thing called officers' week where they're sort of quite sort of put under pressure, and then they become a troop commander, four troops in each squadron. And, you know, there's never a squadron that's got four troop commanders because of the selection process. But basically, troop commander comes in, he's, he's sort of, you know, the troop commander, the officer. But actually, what he's there for, he's not there to command a troop on, on operations because he hasn't got what are called basic patrol skills to, to go on the ground. But you don't need 
troop commanders. What you desperately need is the next level up, which are squadron commanders, which are the majors. So in effect, troop commanders are on selection again because it's the troop seniors, you know, the senior NCOs, the sergeants and staff sergeants within the troops to show them how it works. Not only what you can do, but actually just as important what you can't do. And uh, it's their job to, if you like, train them up because once they finish their three-year tour, they'll go back to the, their, their, their respective units, but there'll be another selection process that'll go on. So director of special forces will go, okay, right, who out of this group do we then want coming back as a, as a, as a, as a squadron commander? And there's a form of selection. So troop seniors are involved, you know, the, the, the officer corps, especially air service are involved. And it's not total democracy, but there's a democracy in it because the argument is if you get a bad squadron commander, well, that's all your fault because you didn't show them and guide them and coach them to be one. So it, it, it really works quite well. So, it, but so the, if you like the continuity, the senior NCOs, because what happens is you do a three-year tour, or you do a year promotion, a three-year tour, and then you literally get a little slip of yellow paper asking you whether you want to do another three-year tour, which you tick, of course, yes, they'll tick, yes. Then after that, there's a decision made whether you'll become what's called permanent carder. So then you're a member fully of the special air service as opposed to having your shadow rank with your old regiment. Because at that six-year point, it might go, well, no, we don't want you as permanent carder. So um, so for the, if you like, the, the troops, that's quite a major, major point to become permanent carder. And and by then, again, when, it, when you join, you lose all your ranks. I become a, um, uh, a trooper, you know, a private soldier. And by then, I was, I was a... Um, uh, seven year point uh, before the golf started, I was a uh, I was the troop um, sergeant, what I call the troop senior. But were you were you busy? Because people now SF has been busy ever since the since the you know fall of the twin towers and and the war on terror, quote unquote. But were you busy back when you were back at Hereford? Yeah, it, it, it's basically the the I think, I'm trying to remember the term now. It's the maintenance of UK's interests overseas, basically. So there's 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 two operational cycles and one training cycle. So you have a, a train, uh, an operational cycle, which will be the counter-terrorism team, which is, you know, anything between six and nine months. You're based in Hereford, you're on a half-hour standby or a three-hour standby, and you're training every day, you're training, um, uh, you know, doing all that stuff that, that, that you see on film and TV, that sort of thing. Um, ops two is where you do one or two things, or oh, three things, really. You go out and you go and fight someone's, conflict you know in effect what happens is the british government go right well come out and, and, and we'll help you with that or you go out and you train the indigenous force to go and fight that conflict or you go out and you train them but then you lead them in that con- in that in that um in that conflict so looking back on it now that certainly the the 80s and the early 90s were quite a golden sort of era for those sort of operations um so uh uh you know spent a lot of time in 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 uh in africa and uh, and again learned swahili uh which nobody needed because everybody spoke you know portuguese french or english everybody supported manchester united so there was this mutual sort of you know just if you do understand you go manchester united and you know, they're off colombia we got involved in the what was called first strike at that, that stage which was the uh the narcotics war in colombia um, so done a couple of tours down there, which was great. Obviously, the Middle East. There was a there's a long running agreements with Middle Eastern countries where uh, teams would go off. They're called team jobs, where you go off and and you'll do team jobs with them. Um, and Southeast Asia. So it was quite 
lucky in that that sort of time to be uh, so you're operating in, in different continents. So uh, and, and for me, it was great. You know, again, young squaddy, first time going to the Middle East was amazing. You know, never been there before. Um, you know, couldn't believe I was actually there. And then sort of become a troop sergeant and you're back there again for something. You think, all right, we've got another four months here sort of thing. And then, but was there always an, was there an interest in a big shooting war? Did that, did that feel you, you had, you'd done it, done a lot by that stage? Did, yeah. Is that something you think about? You think, yeah. I, yeah, I people do. Yeah. Full scale conventional war. Yeah. And, every, and, and, and certainly, you know, the last one was the, the, the Falklands campaign. Um, and so you'd landed up getting involved in these, these, um, uh, sort of, you know, these team jobs. And so there, when, certainly when the golf come up, there was this feeling of all of a sudden, all that stuff that, you know, you know, calling in air support, calling in artillery, all these things, even the C-130, um, gunships, you know, all these, these, these sort of things, all the stuff that we, 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 as that you have to do as part of what you need to know, you know, in case there's a major conflict, all of a sudden we think, well, actually we might be able to do that. You know, you know, calling in fast jets, calling in the, you know, the C-130 gunships, all that sort of stuff. So there was a, there was a sense of, of excitement about that, apart from me, because we were on the counterterrorism team at that time. So we thought we were going to, B-Squadron thought we were going to miss it, um, the, the first Gulf War. And it was the commanding officer at the time who moved the squadrons forward and G-Squadron took over early um, because we literally, everybody thought we we're going to be, well, this war will carry on for like 18 months, two years. So let's get the changeover done, get everybody out there, get everything set up. Um, so we can sort of crack on. So we was looking for a quite a long war in, in, in a traditional sense. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
Your job in the Gulf War ended up being looking for uh, Scud launchers, which were firing uh, antiquated but potentially hugely strategically important uh, missiles at Israel, hoping to bring Israel in against Iraq, and then that would cause the the, the international coalition to fracture as Arab states could not fight on the same side as Israel. And, and that means caning around the desert looking for these yes. things. And, and that goes right back to the earliest days of the SAS. Like you, you couldn't have made up a more perfect... Absolutely. It was, in, it was incredible. It was all of a sudden, you know, all of the, you know, what they called, a, you know, the pinkies, the, you know, the Land Rovers, all that sort of stuff was returning, you know, obviously different weaponry and, 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 and better Land Rovers. But yeah, all that stuff was, 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 was sort of coming back and people were loading up because um, literally it was sort of, well, certainly the A&D squadrons, basically they were splitting in half squadron groups and then just like literally caning it to the border, crossing the border before the, the, the ground war started and get out in the desert, operate on their own and looking for these looking for these scuds. And at that time, we were training uh, and doing the planning, preparing for all of the, if you like, the traditional things, uh, you know, special forces get involved with, you know, disruptions of communications, uh, supply lines, um, forward information. There's a thing, uh, it's a thing called prime target assassination, which is basically IEDs, the thing that, that they've been killing uh, sort of troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. So the laying of IEDs, all that, 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 that sort of stuff. And literally when the Scud started firing, everything was stopped and the whole regiment's emphasis was about stopping Scuds landing in Israel and it had to be done within two weeks or 14 days because the Israelis at one stage, the whole of the Israeli offensive air force was sort of orbiting around the Mediterranean ready to attack Iraq because of these Scuds were landing on you know, sovereign soil. So there was a deal that was struck with the Israelis and George Bush Sr. who said, look, within two weeks, if the Scuds are still firing, the Israelis said, look, we're going to attack. It's as simple as that. And we'll do it on our own terms. So that's why everything changed. And it was all about just stopping the Scuds. Um, so even our patrol, we're going out on foot. We had to take 14 days of everything with us um, because we're going to be out there no matter what. Because it was all about stopping Scud. And, and was that incredible? You were leader of that patrol. That must have been. That's a. That's the dream job. It, it is. Do you know? It was all of a sudden. It was. It was like you know. It's well. Number one, really, sort of you know, happy that we were there on you know on this sort of conventional war sort of thing. And then all of a sudden, you're getting this this classic sort of you know uh, uh, special forces job. So we're, we're actually in that time, there was plans to. I was a troop sergeant of the air assault troop in B squad. So we were gonna. At one stage, before it all stopped, we were looking at uh, doing a static line jump about two hours before the air war started to try and destroy two uh, electricity uh, turbines. And because the air planners thought they couldn't destroy them. So we were getting ready for that and doing a static jump at 400 feet, which isn't a good thing because, you, you know, you never use reserves. So I said for a joke, we won't be needing reserves then. And they went, yeah, that's right. You don't. We're going to jump at 400 feet. Oh, cheers, lads. So all that sort of changed. And it was all about this scud thing. And it was there was this sense of of excitement without a doubt, you know, because everybody was out there. This big thing going on, you know, with like, you know, like dozens of B fifty twos flying over your head and all that sort of stuff going on. And you thought, well, actually, yeah, a big conventional war. On that operation, did did everything did everything go wrong? <laughs> that, could, um, that could go wrong. Yeah, but basically, initially, yeah, I, I think that we the the problem uh, we had was the lack of information and the lack of kit. But lack of information isn't 
that major problem purely because you wouldn't need special forces because the primary task of SF is to get information for the main field army. So we all think it's, you know, stuff going on, but that's the primary task. So a lot of the times you're going out to get information uh, for, for other sort of organisations. So the lack of information wasn't unusual because that's part and parcel of it. But the, the lack of kit, never experienced before because, you know, sort of, you know, special forces group getting all the gear, all the, all the sort of, you know, all the party gear. But, uh, and I certainly didn't realise it at the time, but for the first time ever in, in, the, in the regiment's history, there was three squadrons concentrating on the same operation. So you had G Squadron back in the UK doing the counter-terrorism um, uh, commitment. All three squadrons now in Saudi doing the same job. So we had the, sh- you know, we had shortages of, of simple things like claymore mines and even pistols, which is the primary weapon of the special forces. So all of a sudden, there was this this, this shortage. So we, you know, we made up the, the you know, the the SBS had loads of, of uh, uh, gear that we went and go and see these lads. They gave us some gear. We made our own claymores. That sort of thing. Again, going back to that argument. Well, it, you know. It's pointless arguing about it, you know, and if you don't like it, well, after this, you can always get out. So we made our own claymores, that, that sort of stuff. And even getting out there, uh, we were going to the northwest of, of, of Baghdad to find a main supply route, uh, which isn't a road. It's a, it's a, a, a track system on, from Baghdad going northwest towards um, Syria. So the idea was that, or the, the, the assumption was that this fiber optic cable would run along the MSR purely because of normal sort of maintenance and administration. So it's easier for them to get to. So get up there, because nobody knew where it was, find it, and then destroy it. Because that was, you know, part of the system that was sending the information of where and when for the scuds to fire. Because these, these people, you know, they just don't rock up and then fire it. You know, they, they, there's a surveyor who does these coordinates, all that sort of stuff. So cut that line of communication, which is a classic SF task. Well, we didn't know where it was. We didn't know what to do. When we found it, you know, headbutt it, blow it up, you know, we didn't know. So we we were gonna we were gonna put small um, charges along the along the cable because they're quite easy to repair. So we have them at staggered timings as we're going on, and lay IEDs initially quite close. So as 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 the Iraqi military came down to repair, we'd probably kill or wound them uh, on on the site on the on the demolition site, and then just move them out more and more so it just slows them down for when they want to repair this cut so that was the plan um we got up there uh the anti-aircraft cover was far more than the planners anticipated which affected us quite uh, badly uh later on and also there was two brigades coming from the northwest um coming down to the southeast via baghdad of mechanized uh, iraqis um, who were going down south to you know, to reinforce Kuwait because obviously it was very clear there'd be that invasion. So all of a sudden we had like you know lots of mechanized vehicles up and down this this track. Initially it didn't worry us because it's our biggest weapon on the ground when you're doing those jobs. It aren't the weapons you've got? You know you had assault rifles and sixty sixes, these disposable rockets. Um, it's concealment. So hide up in the daytime, get out at night, and try and find it, this cable. So initially, uh, uh, you know, these things happen, but you just got to get on with it because you're there anyway. It's not a point, you know, you, you're not gonna, the point of sitting down having a moan about it. Big problem really came when we sent our SIP rep out, a uh, situation report. So it's basically where we are, what we're doing, what we're going to do. They just want to know you exist. And you, we, we send them out through burst energy, for hitting satellites, all this sort of stuff. So you encrypt it all. 
you press the button and there's this little two second burst of, of energy that sends your encrypted message off. And every time we pressed it, it went off, but it was corrupt. So you don't have antennas sticking up. You do antenna theory where you work out uh, where you are. Well, the signal squadron works out where you are. Uh, and then you lay out your antenna on the ground and you can bury it so nobody can see it. So you try to bang it out again. Check the antenna theory. That was okay. Um, and hit again. We weren't getting any reply. So it was a corrupted message. So back in Saudi, um, as far as they were concerned, you know, the, the, no, we, they haven't heard from our call sign, Bravo 20. So that was the first of our problems, but it didn't really, it doesn't stop you doing from what you're doing. It just means your sit rep's not, 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 not getting through really. And it was a later date, what we found, again, because of this big move from Hereford, where the signal squadrons are, and they, they work out on the, you know, the, all their antenna free. They took all their technology with them. And what they'd done, they gave us the southern footprint for the antenna theory. And it works on the A and D levels in the ionosphere and, the, you know, at different times of day where you can bounce your signal along the ionosphere. So they gave us the southern footprint around Kuwait as opposed to the northern footprint, which was northwest of Baghdad. And that's why we, we, we didn't get any uh, sit reps through which was the beginning of problems for us, but also back in Saudi as well, because they, were, they weren't getting hold of us. And eventually you got, you got spotted. During the, the, uh, the first night, what you do, you're trying to find a place called an LUP, a lie-up point. So you, um, uh, the, the, the ground, one of the bits of information was right, was the, the, uh, the, the undulate, uh, undulating ground was 14 metres of undulating ground uh, on, on average of, of every uh, nine kilometres. So we knew there was little dips in the ground that we, we, could, we could get in. Again, hide up in the daytime and get out at night. So I found a, an LUP, which was basically an old watershed. just a small sort of wadi uh, dip in the ground near the MSR. Um, what you do, you just don't sort of, you know, rock up there and then sit down. You have to take out a clearing patrol to make sure that, you know, I don't know, when you pop your head up in the morning, there's not a Tesco's there or whatever, you know, so you've got to get out and do your clearing patrols. So I took a, a four-man patrol out and we started to clear. It was clear we were on top of the MSR because you've got all these mechanised vehicles coming backwards and forwards on it. So we crossed the MSR, eventually got it through. There was some habitation, and uh, which is fine, you know, there's, you know, like uh, compounds, you know, the brick compounds where, you know, the, the, the farmers were living. Um, and then about, uh, about 350, 400 metres away, there was a, uh, a set of S-60 anti-aircraft guns. Um, but for us, that, that wasn't a problem at that stage because uh, they're there, they were there protecting, giving air cover. And the air war hadn't started yet, but they were giving air cover to the mechanised brigades that were coming down from the northwest. And and they won't send out clearing patrols. You know, they'll be sitting there, hopefully, just making tea, watching all these 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 track vehicles come past. So that was all good. Got back. So we got into our OUP, uh, and we live on what's called hard routine. So there's you know, there's no sleeping bags, there's no smoking, there's no cooking. So basically, all your kits on you all the time. Uh, and you know, normal infantry soldier, you know, your weapons never than an arm lengths away. From, from your body so you sleep with everything so you just sort of just sit there basically and and uh, and go asleep uh and then during the night it was okay you know you've got a stack system where you've got you know people on sentry duties all that sort of stuff and then that morning start tried to send out the sit rep it didn't happen but that's fine that night we're going to get out and 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 look seriously for this this um uh, uh fiber optic cable and it was about sort of late afternoon and we heard goats on our side of the, the, the MSR, because obviously there had to be our side because you've got these track vehicles going, going past, you know, blocking out the noise on the other side. 
Uh, and at first that was all right, you know, yeah, the goats. And then this young kid shouting and hollering, you know, that we presume was the goats. The, the lead goat had a little bell. So he's t- come up the top of our LUP and he's sort of looking down at us. We're looking at him. More goats came out and the goats are looking at us. And then we heard this kid shouting at the goats to move them along. So then he, you know, from our perspective, he started to, to get bigger and bigger um, as he moved at the, the, the top of the lip of the, uh, of the wadi. And uh, he saw us, eight weapons pointed at him, and uh, quite rightly he ran. Uh, and he ran towards the MSR and the direction of the S60 guns. So there was one of the, uh, the, the guys at that stage, Vince, who was close. He tried to scramble up to get hold of him, but he was too slow. You know, this kid had gone. So we... Uh, had to take it as a as a well we were compromised There's, you know and, and even if we weren't we had to take it as one so the idea was to we had about an hour about an hour of of light before it got dark do, do you ever wonder what would have happened if he vince had grabbed the kid yeah yeah well it's it's yeah it's it's a question that's always asked so basically we would have got him we would have kept him with us we would have strapped him up shut him up and take us with us because part of the planning and preparation was to go back to uh, an emergency RV where, in theory, a helicopter will turn up uh, 3.30 at this this emergency RV. We'll get on it and we'll move along the MSR to try and find another place to go and do... Yeah, again, because we're out there, we, this 14-day thing, we had to stay out try and find it. And then we would just leave him go. So it'd be far from home, he would be traumatised, right, but actually he'd be, he'd be alive, you know, because there's a war on. Um, so that's what we would have done. And... Um, and, and even, you know, the, you know, there's always been the debate, well, would you kill him and all that? Well, actually, there's no reason to it uh, because what happens if you, for instance, you go near that compound that I spoke about, the, you know, the farmer's compound. If there was a dog that was coming out and he was barking and all that sort of stuff, basically, you killed a dog. But you're not going to leave the dog there because in the morning, the, you know, the, the locals look up, someone's killed a dog. There's something up. Not that it's an SF patrol, but, you know, something's up. So what you do is then you... Take the dog with you, and we have bin liners for that sort of thing. Take the dog, take all the blood, all the sand, and you'd have to carry him, literally carry a dead weight. Um, because everything that you have, you take back with you. You never leave, you know, you never bury anything. We even defecate in, in plastic bags, urinate in, you know, little sort of uh, five-litre jerry cans. Because you know, never leave anything in an LUP, because you might have to go back there again. So you have to carry everything. So, you know, it was, it was pointless... You know, if we got him, it'd be pointless killing the boy because someone would have to carry him. It's, it's, it sounds quite sort of, you know, clear cut, but it is. But it is. It's very clear cut. So, yeah, just drag him along. Let him go. You had an hour to get away. Yeah. Um, so the idea was to try and make some distance uh, before it got dark uh, and make it to this, this emergency uh, uh, pickup point where this helicopter uh, would, would be there. Uh, it was about half three in the morning. So, uh, and even that, we, you know, the, the fact is that what you'd have to do is grab hold of the, the, the loadmaster on the back of the Chinook and just hold him so the pilot wouldn't take off because they don't want to be there as well, you know. So it's said, get everybody on board and then fly off and explain what you want done. So we're off to this, this ARV. And it was that when we were sort of, if you like, heading south um, towards Saudi, uh, that we started here track vehicles and it was clear what would happen is that this boy had gone off to the, the guns or he might have stopped one of these these vehicles something saying well there's you know there's these there's white guys down in this in this in this dip so there was a couple of, of track vehicles going down they've got a lot of old um, uh, russian armor personnel carriers so there's not a lot you can do quite frankly about apart from stand your ground because you're in the middle of nowhere it's not a desert as in sand you know it's quite rocky and shaly it's, it's pointless running because you just die out of breath. 
So um, what you have to do is, is literally, which is the order, stand your ground. So like any sort of ambush, the only thing you've got to do is turn towards it and, um, uh, and, and not initially go for it. Just see what happens. You know, we can hear the vehicles. We don't know if they're going to crest the hill or not. So let's just wait and see what happens. Um, uh, but they did. So uh, two vehicles and a couple of like trucks, you know, soft skin uh, vehicles came over. A lad called Bob uh, initiated the, the, the contact with, uh, with, uh, with his 66. And so we're just cracking them off, really, um, and getting some rounds down. They stopped. Um, uh, uh, the vehicle stopped. And you, they've got they've got seven uh, seven point six two um, uh, uh, guns on 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 the uh, BMPs, but the lads in there were clearly flapping because they don't know what's going on. So rounds are going everywhere, which is good for us. And the only thing is, then is you drop your gear, you drop your Bergen. Bergens are off by then. You still got your belt kit on, and uh, just go for it. And the exactly same with what you do in any any ambush. And the idea is that if if everybody's dead, nobody will know that it was, it was been a major cock up anyway. But the ones who got through, um, fine. And then we'd, we'd start moving on because there's nothing else you can do. Everyone got through. We used almost all of our, in the trucks, we used, you know, white phosphor, you know, basically loads of white phosphor, all that sort of stuff because it's a burning agent. So not only covered us, but, you know, in the vehicles and all that, 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 that sort of, you know, there's a couple of lads in, in the back of these trucks. So basically what it is on on those times, as a... As a command, it's a thing called command and control. So basically, you can give the command, stand your ground, a stand your ground. Everybody will do that, going back to this self-discipline. Whether they agree with it or not, they'll do it because they know that if you then start, there's no time to argue anyway, but if you then start having doubts, the integrity of the patrol's lost. So you lose your, if you like, the, the, the little firepower that you've got to crack on. So everybody will get on with it. You can argue about it later on. So off you go. So we used up all the white phosphor, but all these bits and pieces to get through. So the command is then go. And then in the films, you see people like commanding. It doesn't happen. You just, people know what they've got to do. You can shout and holler that you want to do something. They're not listening because everything narrows down and they're just getting on with, they know what they've got to do and they just go on. So the big thing afterwards is control, trying to get whoever's there back together so you can scroll, scroll off so everybody lands up in their own little worlds quite frankly rather than you know what you see in the films it's just getting on with it um what we we, we don't you know we're going to stay there and, and 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 sort of you know crow over it because it, you know we just wanted to use the confusion so basically it was clear now we're going to get followed up we're not going to make it to the erv so we have another system uh, of of uh, being rescued, and that's going to what's called a war RV. And a war RV normally would be the American or the British embassy in the nearest country of safety. And ironically, at that stage, it was Syria. It was you know they're, they're just a couple of uh, hundred kilometers away. So the idea is is then you have these statements that you make, um, uh, you know, a series of sentences. So you don't knock on the door of the embassies; they won't let you in. So you have to jump, you know, jump the wall, that, hug a tree, make sure it show you you're not armed. And just keep shouting out these 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 proof statements, and eventually you'll you know you'll go through the, the system. So it was clear we're not going to make the ERV because they'll just follow us up. So we put in uh, we boxed it. So we went south um, and then boxed around, then headed literally just on the bearing of of northwest northwest going towards the um, the border, and and then the air war started. So there was a there was a there was a uh, an airbase. 
I don't know, 40, 50 kilometers away called T1, technically called T1 within, within the, you know, the planning packs. So there was loads of jets screaming off. You could hear all jets going all over, over the place. We're not too sure if they were Iraqi or, or allied forces. Um, and then now you'll get the, you know, the distant bombings of, of, of T1. And what happened is, is this guy, uh, one of the guys, Vince, uh, was injured. He wasn't shot, but what, it, what had happened, again, because it was very rocky, it's like really a bit of a gammy leg, actually. It was all sort of mangled up, um, all, you know, because of all the running and, and running around. So what I'd done, it put a guy out in front. Uh, and again, we only had uh, one night viewing aid. How about that? <laughs> it's incredible because that's all we could get our hands on. One night viewing aid, put scout out night viewing aid, put... Uh, uh, another guy out to cover him, and then this guy Vince, and then me. So all of us, all, all of a sudden, like he's slowing down very clearly. You know, it, we got problems uh, uh, with Vince because um, he was incredibly slow. Um, and you've got to travel at the speed of the slowest, of course. So there was aircraft coming from the west, coming over. Obviously, we can't see it. You know, we can just hear these these fast jets coming over. So what I decided to do was get on what's called a TACB, which is a small tactical radio that talks to aircraft, international um, uh, frequencies. So you get you, what you do is a TACB, you pull a pin, press the presser, and you get on, on the air, and you can talk to, the, you know, the, 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 the fast jets. So I told Vince, say, look, we're going to try a TACB here, because we've definitely we've got troubles. Um, uh, so they knew that we were, number one, we're still alive, because they hadn't had a sit rep. So uh, got on the TACB, you know, uh, uh, any call sign, you know, uh, this is Bravo 2 we're a ground call sign, over. Um, didn't get any uh, reply. And then eventually got an American voice coming over, go, roger that, Bravo 2 Roger that, Bravo 2 And then sort of faded, you know, as he, boom, as he shot off. So it's almost a line of sight thing with the tactics. And it was then they realised that Vince had carried on and we're literally, you know, you can't, you know, there's no ambient light. So Vince had gone. He was probably about, you know, 50, 60 metres ahead. The other two in front don't know, but we were now split up. And basically, I didn't make sure that he understood what was going on. So at that stage, you're in two groups, you know, and it's, well, there's not a lot you can do about it. Everybody knew where they were going. Everybody knew what was expected of them. You know, get to the border, we're going to the war RV. So now there was two groups because you're not going to shout out. You're not going to use white light. You're not going to do that because you don't know who's about. So off we went in two groups towards uh, the Syrian border, literally due, you know, northwest, just on, on a compass bearing. And then we started having trouble with the weather. Uh, we had snow. First it started as rain, then it was sleet, then it turned into snow. And obviously in the south, what was happening, there was all the rain that was, that was sort of affecting this big mechanised attack on, on Kuwait. We had, we had snow coming down and... Uh, Bob, Bob Consiglio, who, who was the one who initiated the contact with, with, with the 66, he started to go down with hyperthermia. Basically, what we we, we we done, we got into, what was it, the, the tank, the tank berms, you know, where they dig out uh, uh, an area so a tank can go in, so it's just the hole over woods. And obviously that was facing Iran, because this war that had been fine. So we got in one of them. And again, it, it's it's that, that, that group decision to say, right, what we've got to do is get a flame going. We've got to get, you know, we've got, we've got to get some, we've got to get a brew down his neck. We've got to start warming him up because otherwise we're going to lose him because he was going down. So it's not as if myself as the commander go, right, this is what we're going to do. It doesn't work like that, you know, because everybody's got to say. So, and you say, right, this is what we need to do. Are we going to do it? And they went, yeah, of course they're going to do it. So we dug out and we got a brew going for him, which was breaking all of 
what called SOPs, standing operating procedures. So uh, we got a brew on, uh, so there was white light. Obviously, we're covering up, but then we got some. You always on your on your on your kit. You've always got twenty four hours of, of food, you know, emergency sort of food. So uh, loads of hot chocolate. Getting loads of hot chocolate down him. You know, trying to get him warmed up, exchanging body heat, all that sort of stuff. But the fact is, we still had to move. So we got him warmed up. He was okay to move, and then we 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 started to uh, to get on because we just had to make distance before first light, and um, so we then found a basically a, you know a, a, a depression in the ground, which was a dried up uh, uh, stream. Obviously, by now it's starting to fill up a bit. Um, the, the the ice had melted during uh, sorry the snow started to melt um, uh, during the daytime, and it was clear Bob ain't you know it, Bob ain't going to make it. So we're trying to keep him warm. And what I decided to do then was that we could see a metal road, a, a tarmac road, a couple of kilometres away uh, that was heading northwest. You know, and there's trucks coming backwards and forwards. Uh, and what were you expecting that part of the world? A lot of technicals, you know, like flatbed trucks, all that sort of stuff. And so I said, right, what we're going to do, we're going to have to nick a vehicle. We've got to make the, we've got to make the border. We've got to get over into Syria because otherwise Bob's going to go down. And so we waited until last night. Myself and Bob... Took off our belt kit, weapons and all that. I held him. And then we saw some headlights, the first set of headlights that actually came from the way that we wanted to go, northwest, and sort of, you know, waving him down with, with a torch. So, but instead of like this flatbed or, you know, four-wheel drive that we was after, because then we could go cross-country. Uh, it was an old 1950s American taxi. Um, cracked windscreen, you know, the Arab was driving in Arab dress. There was two militia in the back which was a father and son group and then so as soon as it stopped obviously the rest of the lads out weapons getting them out so the two militia in the back they were they, they were going ballistic they're going like we're christians we're christians he's an arab kill him kill him so mate we just want the taxi so we, we got them out and got round, but we were committed to the road so and we started to make distance it was great getting the heater on and all that sort of stuff it was good so we got to the 11 kilometer point towards Syria. So we had about 11 kilometers to go before we hit the border. We were, clearly weren't gonna drive over the border. We would have jumped out and then started to, to negotiate that night because we wanted to get over the border before first light because we don't want to get stuck around that area. So, uh, but we got caught in a vehicle checkpoint, uh, lots of trucks, all that normal stuff. And then lads started, to, uh, Iraqis were, were just walking down you know, not weapons in the in the shoulder sort of thing, all nervous, but they're just walking down, you know, checking cars and all that. So what we had to do was was initiate the contact um, to get out because as soon as they come down to us, then it, it would be a contact. And literally, again, in the films, there's all these great plans. It's not. It's like get out, go left, hit that wall, and then start heading northwest and just go for it. Use the confusion and then just keep together and we just go for it. And that's what we've done. So we've just got loads of rounds down. Went left, started to move, uh, and then lots of firing coming from the roads. But they, again, they're shooting the shot. Everybody's just laying down loads of fire. So what happened from that point was was that we then uh, had about 11 k's to go, uh, and we landed up fighting to the border. Uh, obviously, there's lots more you know, Iraqis up near the border. They, they, they'll be aware of what's going on as soon as that initial contact happened. So we had a lot of stuff um, uh, uh, going on. By now it was all dark. We're out of the way of the road. We're out of that. And literally as we were moving on, these contacts would happen. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd land up getting all split up. Bob and Siglo got shot. I don't know. It was about the third third contact. So basically he had a Minimi, which was a, it was a light machine gun. 
So uh, he had about, I don't know, probably about 20 rounds left. So what you do, put the gun up in front. So as you're moving, so if anything happens, all he does is just get that fire down. It gives people time to move out and they get some fire down. So basically Bob was up front. Contact happened up front. So he, he started to um, uh, the fire rounds um, and, and was shot. Uh, so so he went down, then groups went left and right. So uh, we landed up in two groups of two by then. I then moved moved along with with uh, with a New Zealander, um, uh, and then the other two groups they were moving towards more towards the Euphrates River. We were going left as we split after that big contact, and went through a series of of, of uh, uh, contacts where we, we came up on a on a on a rise, and as we came over the rise. Then they, they opened up. Um, he went down. I thought he was dead. He actually wasn't. Later on, I found out that he was, he was, he was wounded. He went down. Um, so I'm trying to, you know, look. It's so dark, you can't see him. So he's down. So I just carried on. I went right and went round. Um, can hear the other contacts going off to the right with the, with the other two lads. You know, hundreds of metres away. They were well down by the Euphrates. And um, I got about two metres from the border before um, first light. So what I decided to do was just come back a little bit into Iraq and find somewhere to hide because what I didn't want... It's a, it's a, it's a political border. It's, not, it's not, a, not a social border. There was a town called Al-Qaim uh, which straddled the border. So it's not as if you jump over the border and everything's good. So I thought, right, well, I don't want to get... I didn't physically know what the border was, whether it was barbed wire, you know, I don't know. Serial workmen's careful drivers or whatever I didn't know and at that stage during the planning and preparation we were told that the CIA will be along the border to uh, uh, take people like us and down uh, pilots to rattle them through to get them to the embassies in in Syria so we asked well how do we identify the CIA operator who's on the other side of the border and uh, what they said was, say, well, it'd be easy because as you go through the towns, if there's a white sheet hanging out the window, that's where it'd be. So I thought we'll give that one a miss and just do it ourselves and go. So I've needed all that night to make distance from the border. Um, so um, I land up in a, a drainage culvert on the road, which uh, fed the fields for, uh, from Euphrates. So there was these diesel engines that would suck up the water from Euphrates, bring it up to the high ground, and then it would filter down into the fields because it was all irrigated, both sides of the uh, Euphrates. Um, so I decided to stay there until last light, and then I would have all night to negotiate the border and, and make as much distance as, as possible, really. And then it was that, that day that, that you got caught. Yeah, basically, you know, by then didn't have a weapon. It was all, you know, the points kit weapons. The ammunition is not compatible with with they, the you know the AK systems they had, which was um, uh, uh, seven point six too short. We're firing five five six, so you can tell the signatures of the weapons. So during the day, I'm hiding there in, in the culvert, uh, uh, and I could hear some five five six going off. Actually, short burst five five six, you know, a couple of hundred meters away towards the Euphrates. So I thought, well, there's still some other people that that, that are alive. Uh, lots of shouting in the fields, lots of school kids, all that sort of stuff going on, vehicles crossing the culvert. And I was feeling quite confident and all right, actually, until later on in the afternoon where another couple of vehicles came over, Land Cruiser-type vehicles. And uh, this time they stopped, loads of lads jumping out, and still, in my head, there was this like disbelief that they'd seen me because there was nothing tangible to say that I'd been caught. You know, nobody's 
you know, shouting and hollering that, that I'm hiding. So I thought, well, you know, I'm not getting out. Clearly, I'm going to stay there. But then, um, you know, boots started to come down into, into the water, um, into the, you know, the, the front of the culvert. Lots of weapons. Uh, they started firing around the culvert. They wanted me out. I'm not getting out because certainly lads, you know, you could get shot through just excitement. You know, lots of, you know, they're getting all, everyone, when everyone gets excited. Because it was a, like a lump of steel, the top of the culvert as well. So there's ricochets going out. There's all sorts. They dragged me out. Uh, there's a thing, the nice term is called tactical questioning. So basically it's just beaten up. So, which is sort of, you know, you, you, you know, you've got to take it, understand. They're, number one, they, 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 they found the, the, these people um, that are responsible for this, 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 this problem for the last couple of days. CIA reports that came back um, saying that the Iraqis re- were reporting a, an Israeli attack force, which didn't help us um, later on. And uh, the casualties were about, roughly about 200. So there was dead and wounded about 200. Um, Iraqis so they're taking frustrations out I thought I was going to get killed anyway um, but uh, clearly not uh, and later on we found out that they there was a financial reward for getting you know getting uh, capturing down pilots and, and people like us damage on the, the right hand side of, of my jaw and the teeth were cracked and there's you know uh, um, they've sort of fragmented and, and started coming out put into a vehicle and driven off to Al Qaim which is the the local town and uh, what had happened later on, we found out, was that the, the, all the school, everybody was pushed out into the field to go and look for this Israeli attack force, basically. Um, that's why I could hear all these kids about all the time. It was taken into the military um, uh, uh, location there. And it's then where I saw one of the other group, a guy called Dinger, who was part of the other two that went down to Euphrates. Uh, he was already there. And he'd got caught when they had that big... that. Not big firefight because it was small one because he'd run out of ammunition. But they, I heard that burst of five five six, um, and what had happened? Him and another guy called Steve Lane. The only way they could escape as they were getting followed up was to swim the Euphrates, and um, you know it was winter time, uh, it was cold, and uh, they got to the other side and Steve Lane started to go down with hypothermia, so. Dingo got into one of these uh, diesel pump stations. And, uh, you know, it's just a shack with an old diesel engine, I suppose. Uh, but actually getting a bit of shelter, trying to keep him alive. So when the follow-up was carrying on uh, in, in, you know, during daylight hours, what I decided to do was to get out, get a contact going, see if he can run, see if he can get away, clearly. But obviously, if they follow up, they're going to find Steve and maybe they keep him alive, maybe they don't. He died at some stage, you know, after, after capture, but he was on his last legs. Um, uh, so Dinger was w- w- was there, and we then we we got like this. I was quite happy that it was there. Actually, it was there, there was this relief that someone else had been caught, and actually that that there's a mate there. And then we got taken through the town where people were because the bombing campaign had started by then. So then basically that people were allowed to like like kick and punch us. Basically, just you know start beating on us. Um, we thought we were going to get killed at the end of this. So we actually messed up, made it worse for ourselves by retaliating rather than just take it and move through. So, um, cause we thought we were gonna die anyway. So we got through that. They put us in uh, a vehicle um, and then there was a convoy that led off towards Baghdad um, that night, but we had to stop and retreat because of the bombing. So the bombing campaign and off it went, you know, it was all night, you know, bombing all night all over the country. So uh, we had to wait for a bit and then eventually landed up 
in the, the city centre into uh, an interrogation centre that was built for interrogation of, of the Iranians during, during their war. And obviously we backed their war with Iran. So we gave them military assistance and, and certainly trained their, 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 their officer corps. So the, the interrogations were, yeah, it's what you expect, you know, you're, like you're in a cell, it, everybody was stripped and handcuffed and blindfolded. There was someone else at that time we didn't know, it was a, definitely another uh, uh, Brit. Um, I didn't know which one of the patrol it was. We could hear further down getting beaten up. So I knew there was three of us alive. And we then went through a system of interrogations where they wanted us to say we was Israelis. So, um, which obviously fit their narrative about Israel join, joining joining the war. Well, there was this like round metallic ball on a, on a, on a stick that was used that. Uh, it was burnt with spoons because there was no... Um, electricity or hot water or water you know, running water by then so it was all paraffin heaters in the interrogation rooms so heat spoons and then burn them on you because we're all sort of cut up and, and, and messed up a bit so they would burn on that um had a guy who said he was a dentist from guy's hospital um who'd been there for nine years and he was back now he's in Iraq he's back because of the war who, who pulled the remainder of the uh the uh, my teeth out and what we didn't realize at that time was that They'd recovered Bob Consiglio's uh, body, who was a Swiss-Italian. And he was a, he was a Royal Marine, um, but Swiss-Italian uh, descent. So very dark skin, curly hair, hair and, and clearly we didn't know, he didn't have a foreskin. So it really fit into their sort of Israeli sort of scenario. I don't know, it, t- it took you know, days and days to realise about the, the, you know, the whole fact is that I had a foreskin. So I said, well, like, you know, I'm not Jewish, I've got a foreskin. And obviously within the Islamic faith as well, there's, you know, the, 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 the word doesn't really sort of compute. So they're looking in dictionaries. You can hear the pages turning. So I volunteered to show them. So I'm like pulling, pulling, pulling away. Um, but by now it's like February in Baghdad. It's pretty cold. So I'm pulling away. And, uh, and literally, like they realised it, they, they all started laughing and they shoved a date in my mouth and I got a date. Um, and then the interrogations changed to, well, okay, well, what were you doing? And we were literally being interrogated by military officers who'd been to Sandhurst. So part of our cover story was that, the, well, the cover story in, in the whole story is that we were um, part of a search and rescue team. We're all medically trained. We're all being bought from different regiments to make these teams. We flew out because there was a pilot that was, that was downed. Helicopter left, our officer left us. In the, in, and, and we were lost. So um, we could then go back to our own regiment. So we've got a history, truthful history there. We're medically trained. We can do all that. My, one of them, uh, one of the, the interrogators said, he said, oh, a green jacket. Oh, okay. I was in the, in the Royal Green Jacket. And he said, what battalion? I went, oh, two RGJ. He went, oh. And, uh, and he said, oh, do you know uh, uh, Major so-and-so? And I went, well, actually, yeah, because he was my company 2IC when I was in, in the battalion. He went, yeah, he says, yeah, I was at Sandhurst with him. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's, the whole thing's mad. But um, so we went through, anyway, we went through all this, this, these interrogations. Um, and basically because the, the war with Iran, so everything was very physical because that was the nature of their interrogation techniques with, 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 the, with, with the Iranians. All three of us got out of there and we went to um, Abu Ghraib, which we didn't know at the time. And, we, and, and, and that was quite a relief, actually. Um, getting out of the interrogation set, put in the prison because there was other prisoners there, um, uh, predominantly uh, Americans, 
uh, American pilots that had been shot down by now, because again, the bombing campaign had been going on for nearly two weeks. Um, uh, some uh, Black Hawk search and rescue crews, you know, helicopters being shot down, anything. So they're all being uh, brought in. So when you're captured, you still have a job to do. So you still, from that initial capture during the time in um, in, in the city, in, in Baghdad, so your job, it's got the conduct under capture, is to give your headquarter element, uh, in our case, you know, the, 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 the RH crew, uh, HQ in, uh, in Saudi, time to assess what damage we may have done um, uh, on, you know, information-wise. So when you go on a job, you go into isolation when you plan and prepare. So no one else knows what you're doing. So, and you don't know what anyone else is doing. So if you do get captured, you only know what you need to know. So as you go through the system, you go through the big four, the, the, the Geneva Convention, at your time of choosing, you then go into your uh, uh, cover story and based on, you know, on true facts. And our cover story was, you know, this search and, and rescue team. Because what you're trying to do is give your headquarter element to go, okay, we haven't heard anything from the very first day from Bravo 2.0. We must assume that everybody is captured and they're saying everything they know. So what do we need to change um, or cancel on other operations. So because of operational security, they know what we know. So they, they, because basically then it's keeping other people alive. So by the time we got into um, Abu Ghraib, we were feeling quite pleased with ourselves um, that that system had, had worked because we'd just gone into cover story. And there was no interrogation there. There was, uh, again, we're taking, you know, taking hits in the compound, Baghdad's getting bombed every night, all that, all that, all that going on. You've still got a job. You've still got to try and communicate with other prisoners um, to get names because you never know what's going to happen later on, whether, you know, some people are going to be like killed there or left behind. And then people that you can't communicate with, um, if you see them, you try and remember if they had any insignia and all that sort of stuff, what they look like. Um, uh, so if you ever got released, you can give that information in so they can compile because Ira uh, the Iraqis weren't giving any uh, POW lists out, you know, it was just loads of lads in, in Abu Ghraib. So we, we communicate with a couple of, of the pilots, predominantly where we were, were um, uh, uh, Marine Corps jump jet pilots and, uh, and a search and rescue, a Black Hawk search and rescue team. So um, we, we sort of, you know, as we can do it over the next sort of uh, two and a bit weeks, we started to exchange uh, names, all that sort of stuff. No interrogation, but it was... Like when the cat's away, the mice are playing. They're taking hits. Their families are getting killed, without a doubt, you know, with a bombing campaign. So they would come in um, uh, uh, and then just beat you up, basically. I had to eat my own feces at one stage when I emptied this this, this bucket out. Um, uh, and, you know, I got hepatitis through that because it was a mixture. It just weren't mine as well. So it was just... so. Uh, but that was, wasn't some institutional thing that they was doing. It was just the, the, the person who was there just wanted it done. The Iraqi was there. She thought it was funny. So I think, right, do you do that? Or do you take another sort of beating with the, with the batons? And you go, well, I'll do that. Uh, and what? I, <laughs> when I was a green jacket, I'd done it once uh, with my own in a pint of lager for a bet with the Americans during a big, a big exercise in Germany. But uh, not as bad as, as this one. You're making it, I mean, you're making it sound, well, two things. I'm surprised that you, you know, the professionalism of trying to remember people's cat badge, uh, you know, insignia and things. And, and then also you're able to have a bit of a laugh about it. But is that? Is it is it is that the way that you managed to get through it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's going back to that that whole thing of of that mutual contract. You know, the the fact is that by then, you know, 
I was loving what I'd done. I just loved it in the military. I thought it was fantastic. And so what happened was then that whole point of, of okay, very, very aware that this may happen. It has happened. Actually, the stuff that I'd been taught, not only being taught, but the listening to other people's experiences, which is part of that teaching process, is actually is, is helping me. Do you know? It's, it's, it's helping me. And I'm thinking, okay. So, um, and it goes back to that optimism. It'll be all right. Everything will be all right. So all I've got to do is get through this bit. I always used to think about uh, an American pilot that I listened to, uh, part of the training, who was um, six years solitary confinement during the Vietnam War, uh, a Navy pilot. Literally, you know, the way he describes it, he says, I'm on an aircraft carrier, I'm playing volleyball in a pair of shorts, donuts, cup of coffee, get a briefing, go and bomb something for two hours, I come back and carry on the game. But I wasn't, I was shot down and this is what happened. So I'm thinking, okay, we've got this guy who, you know, had had a... Quite a good life, really, in a way of, of, you know, involved in a war, living on an aircraft carrier. But he survived six years of that. So I'm thinking, right, okay, well, by then I'd been, I don't know, I'd been in the army for 15, 16 years or whatever. And then I thought, well, I'm used to being wet, cold and hungry. I'm certainly used to, you know, like certainly as young squaddies, you know, garrison fights and beating up, all that sort of stuff. So I think, right, I'm on, you know, week five. I know someone's done six years of this and he's still living. So, you know... After two years, I might start getting worried about it. But at the moment, I am worried about it, but it's not going to sort of totally sort of, you know, it, uh, 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 sort of just drown me with it all. Because actually, we'll see what happens. Um, the war's clearly still on because we're still getting bombed each night. So it would be very clear what the result is. Let's see what happens after that. Um, eventually, I, I, I need to let you go because I, I've listened to you all day, but I need to let you go. Eventually, you... Uh, the, the war is over quickly. You were released. Um, was that the end of your soldiering? No, no, I served another three years. Um, so uh, uh, went back to squadron. There was there was six months where I was in and out um, of uh, of um, uh, different hospitals. Um, you know, it wasn't overnight. It was going in, getting checks. Um, got my teeth sorted out in the sovereign base in 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 Cyprus. When we initially got in there, they put in all the different cavity fillings in all that sort of stuff so then at a period of, of sorting that out um and i had some nerve damage in my um uh, uh in my hands well that's where the, the the results of it were um so i had some tests on nerve damage that that sort of thing and then served for another three years so um uh, at that time there were there were two if you like wings um uh, there was counter-revolutionary counter-revolutionary warfare wing and part of that was the counter-terrorism team, that sort of group. There was another group then what was called Revolutionary Warfare Wing. So you've got counter-terrorism uh, who are trying to stop that sort of stuff. You've got RWW, whose job is to start that stuff up. So I've done another three years with RWW, uh, which were fantastic. And um, and then I was approached by one of the, uh, the PA, uh, private military companies because the Americans were going to privatise the war in Colombia. Um, they were going to call it Plan Columbia. So, um, again, all these things about private military companies, it's been going on for decades, you know, and it, it, it's quite sort of well formulated. So uh, Plan Columbia was going to be put in, and so the uh, predominantly American companies that had those contracts were then going to people like myself, people in the American SF, you know, particularly in, in, in Delta Force that had been down there doing the same thing, and saying, right, let's, well, you know, we've got these, these, these four-year contracts, you're coming out. And I had literally, I had four years to do then before my 22 was up. So I was out whether I liked it or not. 
So there's loads of us, you know, and it's not bad, you know, this happens all the time on these, these contracts and the people who approach you are from the regiment anyway. It's a bizarre sort of situation. So I thought, okay, well, I finished RWW and I said, right, well, I might as well just crack on and get out and work for uh, this American company back in Columbia, which was, you know, what, what I'd done before and was in the regiment, but now it's been privatised. Hopefully, normal thing, ultimately normal thing. So school fees and, and mortgage. Same thing as anybody else. <laughs> Same thing as anyone else. And then when, when did you start to write the book? Um, I get, yeah, it, started, it really came about, um, I was approached um, uh, by a, a, a senior officer who, who uh, I got an invitation to go to his house for, uh, I think it was half past seven on Tuesday, but it, you will be there sort of thing. You know, you get an invitation, but you'll be there. So the, 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 the uh, if you like, the proposal was that uh, I write a book in conjunction and they can give the overall picture of what was going on and how it was working, how it wasn't working. By then, Schwarzkopf had come over and we had a whole sort of afternoon with him. He was talking about, you know, they didn't know about the mechanised battalion. So, and all this different stuff was coming in. Um, and he said, well, look, we can do the big picture. You talk about the, the Bravo 2 Zero experience. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do it, I'll do it myself. Um, and by then... Uh, John Nichols and John Peters, who are Tornado crew, who got shot down, they were still serving in the RAF and they'd already written a book, um, Tornado Down. So we've got Tornado Down about their experiences of being shot down and, and becoming a prisoners. So I phoned up John Nichols and said, well, how does all this book stuff work? Not a clue how it all worked. So the process then kicked off. So, you know, went to see the, the commanding officer at the time, said, well, look, yeah, I get, uh, you know, I get, I get what the, the proposal is, but if I do it, I'll do it myself. And then went, started that process, basically. Um, and then a book was published. Uh, I was in Columbia and it became this runaway success. So the publisher said, well, do you want to do another one? I thought, well, yeah, why not? But, you know, get, get us a plane ticket, I'm, I'm, you know, get out of Columbia sort of thing. And that's how it all started. And is there a sadness? Because obviously in the, in Britain, when you write about the SAS, it's very frowned upon. You're not you're not allowed to. I don't know what you're not allowed to do. You're allowed to go back to the the, the mess dinners. It's really interesting. It's really interesting because the process was all done. So um, it all went through the MOD. It all you know all the stuff. I actually gave the Sandhurst Christmas lecture the year it came out. You know what I mean? That's how, you know. So then, but within the media, it was really interesting. It was, you know, you've got some, I don't know, retired colonels jumping up and down who doesn't actually understand what was going on, the process for it to be made and what, uh, you know, produced and what was going on. So I'd literally come out of the MOD main building, jumped into a, a, a staff car to go to Sandhurst, um, some old cavalier, you know, nothing too extravagant, you know, old cavalier or something. There's the newspapers there. So I'm reading, what was it, Telegraph. And, uh, you know, some retired generals jumping up and down say it's an outrage. And all right, you go, well, I'm just off to Sandhurst to do the talk. You know, it's a quite interesting dilemma. So the people who are aware of it, um, uh, great. The people who are not aware about it, or about the system that went on, doesn't really worry me. Um, you know, I was working with the MOD for about 10 years during Iraq and Afghanistan, doing different advisory things and all that sort of stuff. So, it's, yeah, the whole thing's quite interesting, really. How, how the, if you like, the, how the, if you like the system of, of, of making news and entertainment and the way it all sort of works. So initially I was really sort of annoyed about it, but now I understand it's just what it is. It's just what it is. And are you able to hang out and go to reunions? Yeah, yeah, things? yeah. The last one I went to work. It's, at the moment now, it's it's normally weddings of mates, uh, children, 
or their funerals. <laughs> it's like one or the other at the moment. You know. Certainly that older generation, you know, when I joined, and they were coming up to the end of the time. There's a couple of those lads now on the, on the last leg. So we get, you know, so it's a, a mixture of both at the moment. So I do all of the, you know, um, uh, yeah, they all want me when it comes to raising money, put it that way. So I'm always, <laughs> yeah, all that sort of stuff goes on, yeah. Of the of the eight of you on the patrol, th- is it was it three that were, three were killed? Three were killed, yeah. Three were killed. One one escaped, uh, made it to um, the, uh, the 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 British embassy. Rest were captured. One well, there's three of us that was in interrogation centre. New Zealander was was shot in the foot actually, so they got him, and I met him in Baghdad when the International Red Cross got the second wave of prisoners. Um, They'd done, done a deal with the Iraqis to bring in Algerian medical staff to treat the civilian population because literally, you know, they, there's no exaggeration on the, on the numbers of, of people that were killed and, and, and wounded in, in the city, you know, literally on the street as we're driving through with the Red Cross. So, you know, the vehicles are avoiding them, you know, because they're still in the streets. So when we got to this reception area with the international red cross he, he was there um he had an hole in his foot but alive are you are you still in touch with them now no one of them still yeah dinger i think the last time oh same dinger it's about maybe about four years ago i think he's out now he's, he's still working i think he's working on the association now um uh one's in new zealand the other one's in australia now it's like yeah it's like all these things isn't it it's all there and then it all all comes apart and you've been lucky. I mean, you mentioned friends' funerals. Uh, we've heard a lot about mental health and and veterans over the last 10, 15 years now. We, 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 perhaps we should have heard more about it before. Um, you Are you well? Have yes, you no, no, absolutely. The appalling, think, the appalling experiences you've been no, through. No, do you know, I yet, think it's the optimism. It, it's an, an interest in my, my troop, um, 7 Troop, um, uh, which was the Air Assault Troop in, in, in B Squadron. Um, more people have killed themselves, have committed suicide through PST, and they're actually killed on jobs, which is, a, you know, a terrible statistic. And, it, um, and you know, and, and again, one of the things that I've always been involved with, as well as doing the education sort of piece with the military, and and then that extended to schools and prisons and, and, and that sort of thing. But it was actually with, with PTSD. And in the early days, um, uh, when we, you know, we finally recognised that it actually existed and the people, you know, not only needed help, but they deserved it, um uh done a, a, quite a bit of work with with the MOD um uh, just trying to explain it all through the personal experiences of these people who have, who have literally have killed themselves within 2 years of getting out of the regiment um so how we, you know we deal with that um is an ongoing thing because what happens is it's good that conflicts stop that's great the downside of that is that the world moves on you know people have got mortgages and there's covid and all that and then we tend to forget that those conflicts ever existed. And then we tend to forget that people are still suffering because of that conflict. Um, and particularly people with mental health, because there's nothing tangible there to look at and say, oh, you know, he needs help because, you know, but because it's an internal thing. So that, 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 that work has got to carry on. And now we've actually got people within government, you know, people like Johnny Mercer now who are actually in government. Number one, he understands the, the situation. Number two, he's in a position of power now where he can actually take action. And he has done quite a lot since he's got that new uh, um, position, which is good because we need, we need that help. And we need, obviously, the finance to give those, that, that help to people. And, and but you, you put your own resilience to, down to just a the opt- optimistic outlook. It's uh, yeah, it's pure optimism, and it's and it and it's it's pure stupidity as well. Quite frankly, it's because everything would be all right, and it's um, 
And yeah, I really do. It, it, since ever since I can first remember, it's always been all right. And you know, the reality of of well, it's like it's a contract. It's a contract. You can look at it technically and say it's a non-liability contract, which it is. But actually, it's 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 it's, it's, a, it's a it's a mutual contract. They're giving you this. They expect this from you. If you don't like it, get out. And that's why you know the people who. Um, certainly in the early days of Iraq where you got, you know, people within the military are refusing to fight in and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and actually, you know, find it quite disgusting because you've been taking the money, you've been taking all the credibility and all those those things about it. And, and then when you you want to do your job, you're deciding that you don't want to do it because um, it's a mutual contract. Well, I think I've I've taken too much of your time up. Um, oh, it's been great. So pleasure. much. No, a pleasure. A total pleasure. What's your latest book? Uh, whatever it takes is now in paperback and there'll be a new one well next year there'll be a film uh sas red notice uh that'll come out maybe in the new year um here in the united states which is all good and then there'll be another nick stone franchise book in 2022 if i get my finger out and do it yeah come on honestly it's clearly from everything i've learned about you in the last 90 minutes i can tell you a real lazy you know guy exactly I suspect that book will be on time. Um, thank you very much uh, indeed, Andy. Thank you. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History It. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Snow at checkout.